Today's Old Testament reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good. In order to preserve a numerous people, as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 and 11 through 16. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness to deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Several years ago, my wife Renata and I had an opportunity to visit Nice, 
France while our daughter was working at the yacht show in Monaco. While in Nice, Renata and I visited the local Henri Matisse Museum, since Matisse is one of Renata's favorite artists. And since then, one of my favorite artists has become a contemporary and, and friend of Matisse named Georges Roal. Now, we Americans look at that name and we want to say Georges Roalt, but <laughs> I know that's not correct. Uh, so please forgive me if my French pronunciation isn't quite right. But these two French artists painted in the early 20th century, and Roal in partic particular, gave people a new way to see Jesus. In fact, Roal painted Jesus with passion. He used layer upon layer of vivid colors and bold black lines, and in doing so, he sought to give his viewers a deeper understanding and an appreciation of Jesus' life and passion and resurrection. Indeed, this French artist uh, had a riveting belief in Christ's resurrection. Roal worked diligently and productively as a painter for roughly 60 years. He began far more paintings than he could finish. In fact, toward the end of his 87-year life, he burned approximately 300 of his paintings, believed to have been worth a fortune. Uh, he burned them simply because he was convinced that he'd be unable to finish them. Nevertheless, uh, Roal produced hundreds upon hundreds of portraits of Christ. From Christ as a child to his post-resurrection appearances, Roal yearned to portray Christ in life-transforming ways. Do we have such a desire, friends? Through Christ, we have received, we might say, a trillion franc salvation. But do we give much more than a 10 franc response? Has the reality of God sacrificed in Christ for our sakes gone to the depths of our beings? Have we become so moved by God's grace in Christ that we yearn to present him to others in life-transforming ways? These are questions that cross my mind as I think about Jorge Roal and about the International Protestant Church and its future here in Zurich, Switzerland. The purpose statement of an organization is its reason for existence. And I must say, I had a difficult time locating the purpose statement of IPC. And my search ended up actually with different versions of IPC purpose statements. And so, for the sake of my own understanding, I decided to write an integrated JB version of your purpose statement based upon the other versions that I found. And so the JB version of IPC's purpose statement is this. The International Protestant Church of Zurich exists 
to worship God through Christ, to grow together in Christ, to serve others for Christ, and to witness to the love of Christ in our city, country, and world. That is a statement of why IPC exists. The wording of this statement might be improved upon substantially or, or thrown out altogether, but it is nevertheless a concise, memorable, and fitting statement of IPC's raison d'etre. Now the little French that I know is starting to come out. Well, it's also advisable for you members and attendees of IPC to give your purpose statement the test of personalization. In other words, ask yourself, do I consciously and intentionally worship God here in this place through Christ? It is the worship of God through Christ that is distinctive of our Christian faith and sets it apart from other religions. The Bible says that there is one mediator between us and God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I consciously and intentionally grow together, that is, grow with one another in Christ? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his uh, classic work, Life Together, uh, writes this, we belong to one another through and in Jesus Christ. Do we really here at IPC? Do I consciously and intentionally serve others for Christ? And do I witness to the love of Christ in our city, country, and world? These are important questions for us to not only ask ourselves congregationally, but also individually. The same can and should be done with our vision and mission statements, which ideally should be more congregation-specific than the more uh, church-universal purpose statement is. Well, sadly, I couldn't find either a vision or a mission statement for IPC. And... Not having crystal clear and well-communicated vision and mission statements makes any organization very vulnerable to disunity. I believe that these are statements that you as a congregation should formulate rather than uh, an interim or an incoming pastor doing it for you. You know the characteristics and the context of IPC much better than I or any other incoming pastor uh, would know them. The most I can do for you is to give you examples of these statements. Now imagine if you had on a wall in this sanctuary a replica, a beautiful replica, of Roald's painting titled resurrection so that you would look at this replica 
virtually every time that you came into the sanctuary to worship. If that were the case, IPC's vision statement might be, kind of playing off that replica, to provide Zurich with a living and life-transforming portrayal of Christ. Now that's an example of a vision statement that could help to keep you as a congregation unified and occupied for the next 60 years. IPC's mission statement then would be a concise declaration of how you hope to accomplish that vision. In fact, the phrase on the front of the bulletin is, I think, the start of a good statement. Uh, it could be slightly expanded to go along with the sample vision statement that I just mentioned. It could be something like this, growing together in Christ-like character and reaching out with Christ-like love. So then a combined and, and, uh, and, and memorable vision and mission statement would, would be this. We aim, as a congregation, to provide Zurich with a living and life-transforming portrayal of Christ by growing together in Christ-like character and reaching out with Christ-like love. In any case, friends, the reason I identify and emphasize these statements today is that they are both so important and so easily forgotten. And when members of an organization are unaware of or lose sight of a uniting purpose, vision, and mission, then they naturally tend to become more self-focused and make value judgments based on their personal tastes, expectations, and feelings. However, when believers in Christ and bearers of his spirit are united in purpose, vision, and mission, then you have what I am calling a synergy of grace. Supernatural results occur. And that synergized local church can truly have a life-transforming influence upon the society of which it is increasingly a part. Our passage today is the most descriptive one, perhaps, of, of a vibrant church in the whole Old Testament, uh, pardon me, New Testament. In chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, Paul gives a prayerful and powerful description of grace and salvation. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he mostly explains ethical results of grace at work in people's lives. And one of the key metaphors that Paul uses in this letter, especially in chapters 4 through 6, is the metaphor to walk. We have this metaphor used in chapter 4 verse 1, but of course you don't see it in the New International Version that is before me and perhaps in, in, in the hands of, of some of you. That's because the NIV translators did more than just trans, translate. They did quite a bit of interpretation as well as they gave us their translation. And so... In the vast majority of cases, the NIV replaces the verb to walk with the verb to live, 
or to do. In any case, Paul basically says in chapter 4, verse 1, that we are to walk or live a life worthy, literally, of the calling with which we were called. Paul stresses very much both the specific and the, the privileged nature of being recipients of God's saving grace. And he proceeds to describe the responsibilities that accompany this grace. Verses 2 and 3 contain not sentences, actually, but phrases that are all grammatically linked to that verb, walk. In other words, our worthy walk in Christ, in God's grace, must be marked by humility, gentleness, loving patience, and peaceful unity. These qualities should mark all of our lives, but especially the lives of us pastors. And part of uh, my personal growth plan is to, is to always have a, an intent to grow in humility. And in, in that effort, I, I've recently read uh, devotional material to help me do this from Benedict of Nursia in the early 6th century and from Jeremy Taylor in the 17th century, both of whom wrote on, uh, at length on this concept of humility. Humility, you see, is first and foremost. It's the foundational virtue out of which all other virtues grow. Specifically, humility is lowliness of mind. And in the Greek world, it was the expected attitude of slaves. And therefore, Paul calls himself in, in verse 1, a prisoner in, not for, but in the Lord. And he refers to himself as the Lord's slave uh, time and again. Gentleness is the opposite of harshness. And gentleness is, we might say, a forgotten virtue in our day and age. Uh, in general, people do not value gentleness. However, we are clearly called to be gentle in our dispositions, for Christ himself was gentle in spirit. To be patient, bearing with one another in love, is literally putting up with each other in love. Sometimes it's hard to put up with one another. According to the 4th century preacher John Chrysostom, to put up with one another in love is to have a soul that is deep and wide. It is to be literally big-souled. That is to say, you and I value one another so much that we will not give up on one another. The nature of our relationship may have to change for whatever reasons, but our Lord and Master desires that our shared love would endure. Verse 3 is uh, literally... Be zealous and eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as you have it there in, uh, in the bulletins in the ESV, English Standard Version. 
Our unity in the Spirit is a gift from God. And it's a gift which must be both preserved and which we must progress toward. In verse 13, there's this progression referred to, uh, progression of maturity. That word bond, by the way, is an interesting one. It's closely related to the bonds that prisoners wore. Paul actually thinks of himself and us as captives in the Lord, bonded together by peace. It's kind of hard to get our minds around this blending of terms. After Paul has each of us examining ourselves in verses 1 through 3, he then gives us in verses 4 through 6 a dose of ancient liturgy regarding our unity. This uh, is liturgy that uh, most likely Paul himself prepared or liturgy that he perhaps adopted for use in churches that he founded or perhaps he prepared or adopted it just for use in this particular letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. We don't know exactly. I'd like to go over verses 4 through 6 for you point by point, but I must move on. In verse 7 we read, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Actually, in place of that word apportioned, we should have measure, as you have it in the ESV in your bulletins. The point is that each person in the church receives a God-given measure of grace. And only as we all use our measure of grace can we reach the fullness of grace that God has in mind. Each person's measure of grace is vitally important. And I must say that the word grace here is used differently from how it's used in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. In fact, we're not so familiar with this use of grace, which only amounts to about 15% of Paul's use of that word charis or grace throughout his writings. Here he writes about grace for ministry. And I'm talking about grace for ministry when I use the phrase synergy of grace or collaboration of grace. Then, believe it or not, verses 11 through 16 constitutes one long sentence in Greece, uh, pardon me, in Greek, about this synergy of grace. And my overriding prayer for IPC, dear friends, is that this synergy of grace depicts more and more your future. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ then we will no longer be infants 
tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This super complex sentence has two subjects, actually. Both the ministry of grace that takes place in the body of Christ and the maturity that this ministry over time achieves. And one extremely important point in these verses is that the gifts referred to are people. People like you. And what's more, these verses are are not primarily about pastors. Those four, uh, four first century offices mentioned in verse 11 are not simply for us to adopt today. In fact, there's not even... Uh, full agreement among scholars as to exactly what activities those offices entailed back in the first century. But what is clear is that all of those offices were involved in proclaiming and explaining the gospel specifically and God's word in general. And that is the primary purpose of us pastors explaining the Bible is a great challenge when you're dealing with ancient languages and ancient cultures and trying to translate biblical content for specific situations in our contemporary world. But but now let me reiterate, the works of service The works of service, the many ministries of grace in this church are for you to do. I pray. I plead to God for a new IPC pastor who will prepare you for and in no way hinder or thwart you from carrying on a thriving maturing, God-honoring synergy of grace. Amen? I'm sorry I have to close. These six verses are so rich. I wish I had more time to address them more fully. But I encourage you, dear friends, to read and and reread and meditate upon these verses in the coming weeks and months because they are crucially important, I believe as you contemplate what kind of pastor or pastoral team to call to IPC, and as you envision the direction in which this congregation needs to head. And let me add, let me add that you as a congregation already exhibit a beautiful and energetic synergy of grace. 
Really, truly, I am so impressed with you as a congregation. Only may your synergy of grace intensify and increase as time goes on so that no ensuing pastor or pastors come to dominate the ministry at IPC. Toward the end of his life, Jorge Roal was asked why he was so obsessed with painting Jesus. His answer was this. My life's goal is to paint a portrait of Christ so moving that whoever looks on it will be immediately converted. Likewise, dear brothers and sisters in God's family of grace, may IPC, may the goal of IPC be to present a living and life-transforming portrayal of Christ that is so moving that everyone who looks upon it would be immediately drawn to faith. Amen.